Hello and welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja. And in this brief video, I will give you a sort of a conclusion and a summary of Chapter 1 of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Now, those of you who follow my channel probably already know that I have a series of 12 lectures in which I did the line-to-line -line reading of Chapter 1. And so you can always go in detail by watching those videos. But I thought I should also provide a, a summary of what Freire is setting up in Chapter 1. So if you look at the very beginning of the chapter, he explains the world in this dichotomous relationship, in this agonistic relationship. <clears throat> there is a group of oppressors and there is a group of oppressed. That relationship, according to him, is a relationship of dominance, right? In which the oppressor group <clears throat> attempts and tries to create the oppressed as these silent, dehumanized subjects or objects, you could say. So the struggle then is for the oppressed to reclaim their full humanity, right? That is the object of any pedagogy, but especially a pedagogy of the oppressed, how to claim their full humanity, right, for the oppressed. Now, please keep in mind that Freire's idea of human subjectivity is pretty romantic. There is a certain romantic humanism involved over here, which was part of, uh, you know, early Marx as well. And that he's very Marxist in his approach, or socialistic, you could say that. Now, after establishing that the world exists in this dichotomous order in which the oppressed are caught in this duality where their actions and even their consciousness is governed by, governed by the system created by the oppressors, the purpose of pedagogy of the oppressed then is to develop a kind of pedagogy with the oppressed that enables them to claim their full humanity. But since they have been dehumanized by a dehumanizing system perpetuated by the oppressors, one other aspects of liberation then is for the oppressed to not just liberate themselves, but also in the process humanize their oppressors, who after all, by dehumanizing others, have also dehumanized themselves. So that's the project. Then in the chapter he also discusses, you know, how do the oppressed internalize the logic of oppression. Since they only have existed in an oppressive environment, that's the only system that they know. So even when they think of their own liberation, their first model is to emulate their masters, right? So the pedagogy of the oppressed then must also take into account that the oppressed, in defining their own humanity, realize that they can't define it on the model of their oppressors, right? They can't, when they are successful, become the oppressors themselves, right? And that's another aspect of pedagogy of the oppressed that Freire is trying to highlight. Then he goes on to describe that, okay, when the fight for liberation of the oppressed is launched by the oppressed themselves, right? How do they get there? Through praxis, right? What is praxis? Praxis is a combination of reflection and action. Reflection not just on 
their own selves, but also in the world in which they live, right? And when they reflect upon it and then act to change it, that is what becomes a praxis. Now, when that happens, when that liberatory movement is launched by the oppressed, he also then theorizes what to do with people who might leave the order of the oppressed and join the ranks of uh, order of the oppressors and join the ranks of the oppressed, right? And so the idea is that they should be welcomed in solidarity, but those who have left the house of the oppressor to join the oppressed must keep in mind that they cannot come in with their own consciousness, which is formulated in the model of the oppressor, and try to tell the oppressed this is how we do things. So there is no top down. But there is room in a liberatory movement led by the oppressed to accept people in solidarity, people who previously might have been part of the oppressive order themselves. Then in this chapter, he also discusses the nature of oppressed consciousness. Because it's constructed by an oppressive structure, and by the oppressors, sometimes, and he is coming through Fanon, the oppressed turn on each other, right? Because their situation is precarious and because they don't know anything outside of the system in which they exist, and since the public sphere is owned by the colonizers and the oppressors, right, the only violence that they can practice turns on their own communities where they fight each other, they practice it on their families, their children, right? Realizing that then enables them that part of what they are doing is caused by the trauma of living in a colonial situation, living in an oppressive environment. Then towards the middle of the chapter, he further theorizes, uh, you know, the revolutionary movement itself, how will it come about? right? How would the peasants and workers come to consciousness of their own lived condition? One thing that any liberatory movement, according to Freire, must avoid is the hijacking of the people's movement, people's liberation struggle by an elite through propaganda, right? Through sloganeering, through communiques, instructions, because then what is happening is people are still objectified. They are tools in the hands of a demagogue or a group of people who claim to liberate them, but they're only using people as chess pieces to play their own games, right? So a true liberatory movement will make sure that no one appropriates people still as objects to achieve their own ends. Any leader who does that according to Freire, is not administering, doing authentic praxis. And then towards the end of the chapter, he basically teaches us that all liberatory movements, revolutions, right, they are pedagogical in nature. They are pedagogical in nature because in the process of liberating ourselves, we must first learn our lived conditions, right? Those must be taught, but not taught from top. If I am a teacher and I want to teach liberatory way of life, 
towards freedom and full humanity, I cannot bring it in a basket to my classroom and distribute it. Liberation and freedom is never given, right? So how must we go about it? We must go about it by thinking together, right? And any recipe for change that is done for the poor, for the oppressed, is not going to change that. In order for change to happen, it must be done with the oppressed. In this chapter also, there is a very important concept, two or three very important concepts, but first is of false generosity that he talks about. What is false generosity? False charity or false generosity, according to Freire, is any attempts by the elite or by a group that has resources to just throw money at things or try to cosmetically change things, right? We're going to give you our extra clothes. We're going to give you some charity without changing the structures that produce poverty, that produce inequality. That, according to Freire, is false generosity, right? And we can see that in the world aid programs, aid sent by the developing countries to, you know, by the developed countries to developing countries, and they feel good about it, but they are not doing anything to change the global inequalities that they themselves have produced. So that is false generosity. Ngugi uh, Chiango has a beautiful passage in The Devil on the Cross where he talks about that kind of false generosity where these people bring charity to us during the day and rob us at night. That's what he says. So that's another concept that he's theorizing in this chapter. But over and all, what he is laying grounds for in this chapter is the need for pedagogy of the oppressed, but emphasizing that it cannot be top-down, that the oppressed are capable of thought and thinking and reasoning, and they know their conditions and can learn more, right? And if we or anyone else wants to work with them, we must work with their experience, right? We must think with them, and that's why towards the end he talks about intention and intentionality of consciousness, because it always tends outwards, right? And that teacher and student must do that together. Right. So overall. The other concept, major concept that he touches upon is conscientiousako, right? I, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, which is coming to con consciousness, but the kind of thinking which doesn't only think the self, but also thinks the world, the politics, the e economics of one's existence. And that is what the oppressed must come to, must think the way their life and living in it in order to change the world. And so towards the end of the chapter, then he is going towards revolutionary change, right? Change in societies and elsewhere. And what he calls it, that revolutionary act itself is a pedagogical practice. It is a pedagogical practice because people must co-learn with others their own lived experiences, right? And after they have done that, they must work together to change it. The whole project, romantic as it sounds, is for the oppressed who have been dehumanized through an oppressive system by the figure of the oppressor to claim 
their full humanity to be free independent human beings in the world now another thing that he points out is that this cannot just be done we can't promise the people that after the revolution is done they will gain all their rights and they will be able to become fully realized humans no people must first claim their humanity and then bring about change there is also a cautionary note towards the end of the chapter about appropriation of the potential of the people by demagogues by groups and constituencies who appropriate for populist reasons the sentiment of the people and their poverty and mobilize them to their own ends without changing anything and that kind of leadership for freire is also unauthentic right and the oppressed also must learn to do to deal with it but also anyone who wants to take a position of leadership in any liberatory movement needs to keep that in mind right and so then towards the end of the chapter what we are learning is that revolutionary change is a pedagogical practice it involves a praxis a praxis is always a combination of reflection and action but reflection not just about one's own self but one's existence in the world outside as it impacts my life and everyone else's life and when these come together and when teacher and student co-intend and co-think the change then develops a kind of pedagogy which is pedagogy of the oppressed and not for the oppressed not top down but practiced and delivered right with the participation and full humanity of the oppressed themselves so these are some of the thoughts of course uh, that are covered in chapter 1 now of course if you have time and energy you can go through all the 12 lectures that i have recorded i i'm calling them lectures but they are mostly conversations where we read chapter 1 word to word and talked about it i highly recommend that i will post uh, the links to that on the end screen and meanwhile what do you think of chapter 1 do you think it actually applies to our life as students workers Uh, of the 21st century as professors of 21st century if it does please you know post your comments in the comment section so that we can have a conversation and if you have not already uh, subscribed to the channel please do so uh, and you know post any questions that you might have uh, with this i will sign off thank you so much for being a part of this wonderful experience and now i will see you next time until then as always peace and love